he is definitely from the old school of the Kingsguard rather than the uh, the Boros Blout school of as soon as someone appears to take Tommen off you, just surrender. <laughs> <laughs> Can we start calling that Borosing? A, a failure of your duty <laughs> so massive as to be comical. I'm shocked, shocked I say, to discover that sometimes people aren't entirely trustworthy in the context of parleys. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you trying to tell me that sometimes people bring knives and things to, 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 to events where people are expecting just to have a discussion? Hello and welcome to part five of Shark Live Royals Look at a Feast for Crows by George R.R. R. Martin. I'm Matt. I'm Dave, hello. This is part five. It feels very much like part six, Dave, because we've already recorded this <laughs> once. And for uh, basically some kind of technical reasons that even I don't understand, um, it didn't work, so we're going to do it again. So we may be naturally a little... I don't know, there may be a bit more brevity in this than, uh, <laughs> than normal. That's quite optimistic, Matt. I think, I think we have more than enough bullshit in us to repeat at least one of these. <laughs> okay. Well, today we're reading from um, a chapter called The Queen Maker, as far as a chapter about Sam, where he's sort of standing by a window, looking nervous. Surprisingly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the first one, The Queen Maker. Mm. No. Mm. It's another mid-log. <sighs> yeah. I mean, yeah, no, no, good. I trust you, George. These have consistently turned out to be quite entertaining. Yeah, see, Midlog, if you haven't listened to uh, any of the earlier podcasts, fool, what are you doing? But um, this is what we <laughs> this is what we call the um, sort of weird little bits where we get new characters which are sort of introduced in a different way. So normally have like a, a rotating roster of, of characters in Game of Thrones, but Feast of Crows seems to every so often just divert over to a prologue-y type thing in the middle of the book, and this is what we've got here with The Queen Maker. This is Ariana. Um, if you remember, this is the daughter of Prince Dorim. Get ready for a shitload of extra characters here. Um, so there's Ariana, who we've been introduced to briefly. There's Sir Aris Oakhart, who we spent a little bit of time with before, is in one chapter. There's Dre, Silver, Garin, Darkstar, also called Sir Gerald, and various other people <laughs> turning up. <laughs> I it's, it, tell you what, it's Darkstar, also called Sir Gerald, that really does it for me there. Because I don't have any faith at all that he's going to stick around for more than one chapter. But George is still compelled to give him two different names. <laughs> Fuck it, hell. I think I think Dark Star is um should be Dark Star brackets the artist formerly known as Sajel. <laughs> <laughs> you'd love that, mind you. If you got into doing that in the book, you'd end up having to repeat Arya's name about nine thousand times, wouldn't you? Arya Stark, formerly known as Cat of the Canals, formerly known as uh, the Ghost of Harren Hall, formerly known as. Uh, what, what was she? Welp and Spotty Bollocks, and she's had thousands of nicknames, hasn't she? <laughs> yeah, Spotty Bollocks was a great one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that very clearly. That's absolutely not something I just made up. <laughs> yeah, and if they had to put the like introduction for Daenerys every time, Queen of the Andals, Breaker of Chains, <laughs> get on with it. Anyway. Um, so yes, yeah, so we've introduced to all these characters. Basically, Ariana and her plot to uh, crown Marcella as a as the as a sort of queen of of Westeros and provoke the Lannisters into a war and the other people are basically her sort of group of fellow conspirators uh, most of them are old school friends I think apart from Dark Star who's just this he just he's like it, this struck me as like a sort of a, a group of sort of young 
barely there with the teens people all coming together to sort of go on an adventure and dark side's the sort of creepy older dude who's hanging around with them <laughs> yeah yeah and everybody's like why are you is that is this entirely above board where are your parents yeah <laughs> i'd never thought of this as like the the kind of teen group thing but now you've said that I've got two competing images in my head. One of them is of, like, the classic teen high school band. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? The sort of, like, nobody knows how to play anything, but you're going to get together and we'll be signed within six months. Yeah, there's like, definitely an element sh- of that. Yeah, definitely, like, sheer, completely unjustified overconfidence. But on the other hand, now you've said that, like, group of spunky youngsters coming together to change things, it's fucking Scooby-Doo, isn't it? <laughs> He's not so much the creepy older guy hanging around as he is the dog that's addicted to weed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and also you've got Severus here, who, let's be honest, really also should know better, but I think he's just completely wrapped up in, in Ariana, isn't he? So he's, he's being led around by the dick in a way which we haven't seen in this book for, oh, it must be two chapters now. Yeah, yeah, there's not really much thought going into his uh, actions here. But anyway, if you want to have a bit of an in, in sort of introduction into what Darkstar's like, the general plan is to crown Marcella um, to provoke Lannisters into a war. Darkstar says, you know what? It would be just as easy just to kill her and, and do it that way. Um, <laughs> this is another George Martin special. Of, I need to make this character seem unsympathetic as quickly as possible. What shall mm. I have him do? Killing children. I think killing children is a fairly easy way of getting people to hate someone. Done. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they've uh, they've left the decoy Marcella in um, in Sunspear. Uh, which is sort of this other child who looks a bit like her, who they cut. Apparently, this was Tyrion's suggestion. They brought her along um, just in case there were any dangerous moments. They'd sort of slip away and leave her to sort of <laughs> do it. So um, <laughs> there you go. Not not above the odd ruthless move is Tyrion. Um, so there's that. So so mm. they go on this this journey. They, they they're taking Marcella to what they think is going to be a safe place. It involves this travel along uh, this river called the Green Blood. And they get to the pole boat, which they're going to jump on, and it's an ambush. And it turns out there's a load of henchmen for Prince Dorin, uh, as long as Prince, along with Prince Dorin's chief bodyguard, this massive bloke with a big axe called Ario Hota, mm. and um, <laughs> this guy called Dre, who's one of the companions of Ariana's, immediately surrenders. <laughs> it's like <laughs> fuck this shit. Um, <laughs> He's the he's the lad who was in the band because he wanted a bit of fame and fortune, but he's secretly kept his UCAS application on the go anyway, so he can go away to university and not not have risked too much. Yeah, um, but the the thing is, it all takes a very. Um, I mean, it, it's at the start, it seems like you know there's a plan, but it seems a bit daft, and if the whole I don't know the the general feel of it up to this point is sort of a load of young people on a sort of a an over-optimistic mission. It all gets very real very quickly here, though, where yeah. um, Sir Eris sort of puts himself in harm's way in between the princess and, you know, Marcella and Ariana. And he ends up charging the, the boat and sort of going down in this blaze of glory where he k- kills a few henchmen and then gets his head chopped off by the uh, the axe of Ario Hota, which is quite good yeah. because um, Ario, at the start, when we f- were first introduced to him, um, do you remember he sort of when he saw Sereris in the palace is like felt a bit sad because he thinks one day I'm going to have to kill that guy I think 
and uh, yeah, he was isn't right. That amazing, yeah. Mm. So he clearly knows the system that he lives within so much. And there is a bit in Soraya Hota here of, of sort of melancholy almost. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Almost like, oh, uh, you know, uh, I mean, he says he's got a great last line of the chapter, hasn't he? You know, um, Ariane says, you know, how did you know we were coming here? And he goes, somebody told, somebody always tells. Mm. Yeah. And he's, he's, you know, he's clearly very grateful for his position, but he's also like, he seems to be aware of his role as like hired muscle in this world of complete brute, like brutishness that is yeah. Westeros. Yeah. Seems to be quite sad about it. And I think that's quite interesting. So, yeah. of course, we're never going to come across him again. <laughs> yeah. So, there's this. There's also, I mean, it's, it just shows Ariana up to be a, a bit of a sort of fool here, isn't it? This really irritated yeah. me. The fact that she. She sort of gets tongue-tied and doesn't say anything, and she watches Sereris kill himself for her. And it's sort of like you—it's very clear one sort of command from her to stand down, and and it would have saved his life. And it's this guy who's sort of supposed yeah. to be part of this massive romance with her, and she just gets him killed, basically yeah. on a whim because she's too—I um, don't know—she's too shocked and uh, I suppose weak in this moment to actually save him. Yeah, and and it's a real sign of a sort of immaturity isn't it it seems to me that she's just she's just kind of like uh, oh I should stop him I should be a proper queen I should oh he's dead oh mm. um, and it's also so kind of poorly thought through and I've got to tell you actually I was a bit pissed off by this I, because of what the character's like but also because I don't really think we're gonna see any more of this ever again mm. Yeah. So it was a bit like, oh, okay, so you just... I really felt yanked around, you know, four new characters, one with two names to learn in a chapter. And, you know, and then at the end of it, everybody's head's been lopped off anyway. Oh. So unless, you know, unless it's building somewhere, I'm a bit, I'm a bit sort of bit nerfed by it, to be honest with you. Hmm. I mean, there are a couple of things that happen here um, with that. One is it looks like Darkstar makes a break for it because he's seen sort of riding off uh, <laughs> as he goes. <laughs> so you're telling me the character who advocated killing a child turns out also to be cowardly and untrustworthy? Yeah. I'm There's amazed. Also, speaking of killing the child, though, um, Marcella at the end of this, it also happens in a blurb. Ariana sees that Marcella's face is that there's a big there's some kind of gash on her head or cut or some mm. she, she's been hit with something there's a lot of arrows flying around and stuff as well but it looks like yeah. she might be dead um as it happens Re- shit i didn't get that at all fuck well I, I i'm just reading into it because you've seen sort of a face covered in blood and normally that means um it, well it, it rarely ends well when your face is covered in blood <laughs> but you're right it, it could be a non i suppose it could be a non fatal wound or something or maybe some other I suppose you don't know it's her wound either. It could be something that she's been sort of doused in blood from somebody else or something. I don't know. But Yeah, I mean, it could be. But actually, that would be a way for it to tie into the future storyline, eh? Like, mm. you know, Marcella's dead, then it's going to be, oh, you've killed her on purpose, oh, big war. Like, I can see mm. that going somewhere now, actually. I just, yeah. I just thought it was another misadventure happening to somebody in a way that's not connected to what's happening to everybody else. Mm. Which, yeah. as I say, I've become quite used to. Yeah, but you're right. The, the the overall thing to about this is there's a big plot which has had a little bit of build up and suddenly just fizzles out straight away. Um, yeah. I will say this for Sereris. Um he is definitely from the old school of the Kingsguard rather than the uh, 
the Boros Blout school of as soon as someone appears to take Tom and off you, just surrender. <laughs> <laughs> Can we start calling that Borosing? Yeah, Boris. <laughs> like a failure of your duty, so massive as to be comical. Yeah, but it, it is it is interesting that the I mean, it, Jamie has has articulated this in the past that he thinks the King's Guard has fallen a long way since the sort of good old days of um of, of the sort of the height of when they were the elite soldiers in the in the whole realm, and yeah. I think Sereris is one of the few who was actually. Um, until he's sort of until he had this weakness, if you like, where he has this romantic relationship, was thought of as one of the best. I mean, he was trusted to guard the princess alone, so he was mm-hmm. seen as one of the best. And I think there's probably that guy Balan Swan seems pretty good as well. And there's Jamie and Solaris. And after that, you're looking at the Kettle Blacks. You're looking at Boris yeah. Blow. It's it's not very <laughs> it's not very inspiring, is it? It's not exactly a roll call of people you're expecting to have to write songs about heroism for. Yeah. You know, you don't you don't think, oh, look at this Kingsguard. Tell you what, we better we better set some money aside for employing some really great minstrels because they're going to come up with some absolutely cracking works of heroism here. Yeah, yeah. No. I think when you when you get to those pages in the White Book, it may well be like sort of. Feast for Crows pages in this Song of Ice and Fire tome. These are the bits you skim over a little bit when um, you look at the histories of all the great Kingsguard. But, uh, yeah, I don't yeah. Know. Um, so that's that. So let's uh, move on uh, from Dawn out to Aya, who is um, still going through her training at the House of Black and White. Um, she's asking, being asked these questions, you know, who are you? Because she keeps saying nobody. But um, no, they don't believe her yet because she's still going through this process of casting off everything that she used to have. Um, and oh, this is also um, this part of this chapter. She's told to get rid of all the stuff, and she gets rid of everything apart from needle, isn't she? Because she can't yeah. bear to let that go. I did quite like that actually, because otherwise, I feel like this whole arc that she's on is. I mean, the 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 House of Black and White, which I still can't talk about without thinking of it as a sort of mashup between Michael Jackson and the Rapture. <laughs> I like I it has this weird sort of sort of culty kind of vibe, right? Where it seems to be very much about giving all of yourself away, and I'm kind of conditioned by all sorts of stories I've heard to kind of see that coming and be like, oh, it's very bad. She's going to lose her sense of individuality and herself. She's going to be brainwashed, whatever. Mm. Um, and and then she, but there's still this piece of her where she like knows where she comes from and why it matters and, and you know, has things that mean something to her, which makes her, I think, a lot more relatable as a 10-year-old. If a 10-year-old really did completely embrace the complete abrogation of their personality, that's no longer a 10-year-old I'm rooting for. That's a 10-year-old I want to see in therapy, you know? Mm. Yeah. Well, I think there's probably plenty of examples of how Aya is pretty damaged for a ten-year-old already. Um, yeah, that's that's true. So I suppose I'm I'm interested in damage limitation here, if such a thing could be yeah, imagined. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I mean, it's, yeah, it's a weird place. This it's the, the the House of Black and White is where people come to die, basically, and that it's all about death. And the the various, as we saw before, all the statues around are all different religions representations of death. And there's this discussion with the the is he called the kindly man or the old the kindly old bloke who um I is sort of is being taught from. And he's talking yeah. about how this um 
the, the, how God has many faces and many ears to hear in that the idea of the house in black and white is that there's only one God, which is death, and it mm. manifests its, himself through these various different religions, but it all amounts to one thing in the end. Yeah, I, I quite like that as a way of addressing the sort of... Because religion's actually getting an increasingly big role in this book. And I think I think that's like I like when people interrogate religion as an idea and like how it changes the way people act. A lot of the time it's quite lazy, but I feel like George Martin's got his head a little bit more screwed on than that. And I think actually if, if you're going to look into people's sort of spirituality and organised spirituality and how they practice that and stuff, you have to address, you know, the quite, the quite common idea that... Um, that you know all religions are reflecting on a single central core truth sort of thing mm. um, and so I you know I, just, I quite like these going that also I really like there's a weird parallel here between um, this and uh, and Terry Pratchett Mort because it's because um, uh, Death who's the main character in Mort only appears he's the only character who appears in every other Discworld novel like sometimes it's a lot. Sometimes he's a main character. Sometimes it's just a single line or a single word. But he's in all of the books, and that's the kind of that's the point almost of the Discworld is that you know all these fantastical things happen and then everybody dies. Yeah. Um And so I, I I like that little chime between these two sort of giants of fantasy literature. I think it was really good. Yeah, uh, and we'll see where this progresses to. But she gets to the stage here where she becomes a novice. Um, so she is sort of in the club now, but at the bottom rung of it. Um, it's quite it's quite a funny bit actually where because people come here to die and then the bodies are taken away to somewhere unknown there's this mm. bit where she's making she's sort of making the stew or eating the stew and she sort of suddenly stops and there's like um you know <laughs> what's in the stew <laughs> <laughs> I love that the the old bloke's right on it as well he's like no nah, it's pork yeah just pork <laughs> chill out don't worry about it it's all right, and it, like so, how often must people ask that question? And if you're constantly getting asked that question, do you not think of rethinking your culinary arrangements a bit? Maybe, maybe make the body disposal bit of your work a little bit more obvious, <laughs> or, or or go vegetarian. You know, that's an option. Yeah. Um, instead of leading people through this kind of, is it supposed to be a discipleship experience where they're like, kind of, everybody has to face their fear that they might really be eating people. <laughs> yeah, um, and this this chapter ends with um, I actually her eating stew people stew or pork stew or otherwise days seem to be close to an end because <laughs> yeah. sorry that's really pleasing <laughs> people stew what what stew is this oh it's people oh it's long pork nice. stew yeah long pork that's it isn't it yeah the, the culinary abbreviation for human is long pork <laughs> which has made me think twice about eating cordon bleu i can tell you <laughs> yeah um, anyway, um, yeah, the chapter ends with her being sent out into Bravos to effectively work as a um, cockle seller on the uh, in, in the streets. the The idea is, I think, the faceless men want her to, I don't know, get better at find, finding out finding out things and finding out lies and telling lies. And it's yeah. sort of her apprenticeship in how to move through the world without being seen, really, isn't it? And so here's an interesting thing. Is this like spy school? Is this like that? Is it like Kingsman or that bit in Austin Powers Three where there's like a graduation ceremony for being a spy? Like, are they come, there's going to be an exam at the end of this? Like, convince me that you're an elderly bravosi woman. <laughs> oh, very good, very very good. Okay, now now convince me that you're a cat. 
<laughs> oh, very poor, very poor form on the cat stuff. Still got a human face. You, I mean, like, I, I love the idea of this being like a kind of mechanized industrial scale educational system. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's um, it, it's funny. It's going to be. I, I do find. I mean, a bit conflicted with the IA chapters because very little seems to happen, which is annoying. <laughs> but but also of the century there, man. Yeah. But also the stuff around it is quite interesting, sort of where she's going and what's going to happen to her, and just what these faceless men are all about, really, um, and whether mm. they're actually, you know, good or bad, or whether they don't even consider themselves to be either. They just sort of carry out death. So you know, it is yeah. what it is. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's a great point. I actually think that's a really good sort of opportunity to talk about something that's that's sort of is building in me more and more as I read these books now. Where I'm like, there are so many plot lines that don't get paid off, and so many chapters in which I'm like, right, so why did I need to care about that? Mm. And, and I, I feel like I'm running out of juice a little bit here, like with the the organization of the of the plot lines and that. I'm a bit sort of ugh, like, why are we? It just feels, there are times when, the way particularly this book is organised, feels like a bit of a collection of almost fan fiction, sort of stuff that's happening around the edges, and I can't really see where it's going or why mm, I should care. That's interesting, yeah. yeah. What do you think? Yeah, I think partly because of the, who um, said in the last podcast about how he wanted to write something that wasn't really um, filmable, wasn't useful to turn into a series or a film. Um, he wanted to write something that was almost a, a fantasy history rather than a fantasy story so there are loads of things in it and loads of characters in it which uh, don't necessarily go anywhere and sort of mm. move in and out of the plot in the same way you would see if you sort of read uh, I don't know a history of the middle ages or a, hist- a history of a very small part of the middle ages you would mm. have a load you, you, there would be moments where you're thinking well was the plot <laughs> it's just a series of <laughs> events that have happened with yeah. a few recurring characters so yeah. it's um yeah it's it's quite a it's quite a an unusual approach because I, I think he's his focus is more on creating a world and having you live in it for a, a few years than about having a very I mean, there is a plot but having a, a, a very clear plot which moves in a in a, in a very clear direction one step at a time and yeah. that can be great and fresh and interesting but it can also i think especially in feast for crows more than any of the other books feel like you're beginning to get a bit stuck in the mud and the wheels are spinning a bit yeah i, I definitely feel that i mean i'm sticking around obviously because i mean george martin's a pro and you know i i i have a good amount of faith that he's taking me somewhere that it's worth going but I have to say right now, it's very much that sort of blind faith. I'm going to go mm. along with this because of what's happened before rather than because what's happening right now is particularly entertaining. Mm. And like, it's a bit sad to reach that point, but I still think it's a testament to how good he is as an author that I'm still in. You know. Mm. Well, the next place we go is uh, the Eerie with, um, is it a new character, Elaine? No, it's not. It's Sansa under a new name. Um, ah, but- El- Elaine Stone's poor life choices. Now, Elaine Stone's poor life change, choices. Change the title, Matt. Change that on the whiteboard there. <laughs> Um, but despite her poor life choices, she's got some nice digs now. She's in the uh, one of the premier suites in the Eerie, looking out over the Vale. Very nice view, you know. Mm. So things could be worse. Uh, yes. <laughs> On the other hand, she is kind of not only under the control of, but 
increasingly sympathetic towards Peter Baelish, which is to say that she is being assaulted from both within and without. Even her own extreme lack of common sense isn't enough to to see just the sort of towering bastardry of Peter Baelish. So I, I would say that, you know, while while every prospect may please in the Eerie, I'm, I'm not sure that the people she's around are going to do her very many favours. Hmm. Particularly uh, not Robin. Eh? Yeah, Robin, who is, let's be honest, you know, without wanting to be too cruel on what appears to be a sickly and epileptic child, is useless. <laughs> he's a knob as well. You do, I mean, he's a like, knob. He's, he's a he's, stupid, he's, sick little knobhead. <laughs> oh, and the thing is, he's not a knobhead because he's sick. He's a knobhead because he's a knobhead. And there's an excellent chance that he's chosen to be a knobhead on so many different occasions in a line that his body is literally rejecting his consciousness in order to avoid him being more of a knobhead. Yeah, Robin. Do you know what I mean? Robin, if you're looking for sympathy from Shark Liver Oil. You've come to the wrong place. <laughs> that's never going to go away as a meme, is it? That's a, that's that's an epic callback. <laughs> if you haven't, if you don't remember that, that's um series three of Game of Thrones, yeah. uh, like the trailer for Game of Thrones, as Tyrion at the end sort of goes, "If you're looking for justice, you've come to the wrong place." That's and, amazing. Uh, Every time you say that, it gets better. Yeah, although you do a better impression of it than me, but let's save it. Let's save it until <laughs> right, towards okay, the end. Right, yeah. um, so when you I'll hear the best hit. impression of that, that's coming up in a, probably a few podcasts' time. And we've got to anyway. remember to do this in several podcasts' time. <laughs> Possibly. Not confident um, about that. <laughs> anyway, yeah, Robin is, um, I mean, it's a bit harsh because he's a sickly child, but he's also written as a fairly irritating character there was there he does have a fantastic moment in this there's a couple actually through this uh, two examples in the part of the book we're reading today of small children taking an epic stand and here's one where he doesn't want to eat porridge does robin um and he always he always when he wants to see people killed says he wants to see them fly as he can be pushed out of the moon door and die um yeah and he's got his porridge in front of him. He says, I don't want to have porridge. And then he shouts, let my porridge fly. And he just smashes <laughs> it across the room. And I think it hits some guy in the face. It's just brilliant. <laughs> it is. That he's, he's fairly funny as well. Just because he's so clearly, like, not only been coddled to a, to a creepy and terrifying degree by his mother. Hmm. Um, but also I was thinking, uh, one of the things I liked about this chapter is he gave me a much clearer view of sort of the areas and environment. And it's one of these moments where I felt like the world building that George does here is really, really cool. And I'm like, oh, this is super awesome. Um, just this, when it was describing the process that people have to go to to get up to the castle, where it's like a three-day journey on whatever horse you can get that will walk up a one-in-one slope. Hmm. And then, and even then when you reach like the the, the last bit of road, you either have to leave your horses and climb up hand over hand, or you have to get into the uh, into this sort of makeshift lift, sort of a basket on a rope where the chickens and the cheeses and everything come up for the kitchens. Mm. And I just thought, imagine growing up in that environment. With I mean, even if you had a parent who was like, no, you should go out and see the world. Go on, go run in, go see what's what. It's not exactly as if there's any frigging gardens up there, is it? So mm. you know, even even absent his mother's his mother's uh, influence. You know, he he was really was on a hiding to nothing. It must have done something really weird to his brain, you know, yeah. where solid ground doesn't really exist. I mean, clearly it has, but yeah, 
And add to that the fact that it appears that he's regularly being drugged as well, just to keep him quiet, um, as, as happens in this chapter as well. Yeah. Um, but there are other things for Peter Bailey to be worrying about here, because um, the rest of the Vale Lords are on the way up um, to basically sort him out. They've sent him a letter which has said, we're here to sort of sort out, you know, protect the... Uh, to protect Robin from false friends and evil counsellors. It's fairly thinly veiled uh, accusation <laughs> towards Peter. I, I love Baelish's response to that, though, where they are, we're here <laughs> to protect him against false friends and evil counsellors, which is the really like, passive-aggressive kind of... It's a, it's a Lord's version of that kind of bitching about somebody in the playground thing. And yeah. Baelish's play is to be like, couldn't agree more, show me to him, I'll hack yeah, him to bits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love that, just totally calling his, like... I really don't think like that if you're trying to take down a man who spent most of his professional life dealing with Varys, that trying to out-bitch yeah. him was the way to go. I feel yeah. like he sort of has a PhD in bitching, and he's probably going to beat you. Yeah. Uh, so the Lord's Declarant arrive, and um, they're here to sort of... Yeah, it looks like they're about to remove Littlefinger. And this is where Peter Baelish has to sort of drawn all his powers of diplomacy, which are considerable. Um, now, the, these laws, a couple of the most, um, I mean, there's a, again, it's another whole list of names to remember, and as they all start talking at once, you've got to sort of slow down and try and work out who the hell's who. And, you know, he's the guy with the little goatee beard, or he's the old-looking chap, or she's the sort of old woman in this or oh, he's yeah. this other other lord who's a brother of some other one or oh, he's the guy that uh, Peter paid off so he's on his side already it's quite a lot to again you need a bit of patience with this chapter uh, one of the um, more interesting lords is this guy called Bronze Yon Royce who's known as a particularly dangerous oh, character Bronze Yon Bronze Yon I, I, I tell you what so used have I become to, to things falling apart and all the all the plot lines falling apart and never coming back together and never having anything to do with one another it is sheer relief and joy right to encounter a character that i've met before in a different context <laughs> turns out this is a persistent universe it's not just an endless expanse of kind of purgatory made out of mud and rain <laughs> and bronze john i mean you say you've met him before and in only the very, very loosest sense of him met him before. I mean, I think he was down at the uh, at King's Landing when there was that tournament for the king for the hand of the king, where he wore this like weird armor with runes all over it. And um, Sansa remembers seeing him when he was taking his son Waymar Royce. If you remember, he's the guy who got killed at the very start of Book One uh, at the Night's Watch. He was on his way up to join the Night's Watch, and Bronze Yonni's dad was taking him up there. And they stopped off in Winterfell and Sansa had this crush on him. It's just a sort of a, a memory of Sansa's this. But we've hardly seen him before, but it is good to see a, a character sort of pop up again. Um, mm. But he's obviously very suspicious of, of Peter Baelish. They're trying to get rid of him and Peter really shows his class as a diplomat here. He um, At first he tries to sow a, a few seeds of discord between the lords where he's saying, oh, you know, yeah, I'm, I'll happily step down, but which one of you is going to take Robin into custody? And into so Oh, I'm not sure that he'd be best. You're not going to share him? And they're like, we know what you're doing, Peter, stop it. Um, I know. So. Although, do you, do, you think, do you think they had, any of them had a sense of having brought a knife to a gunfight when they walked into that room <laughs> and that was his opening play? <laughs> oh, Oh shit! Yeah, where's, where, where's how to be a diplomat for dummies? Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it looks like this other guy. Um, what's he called? This chap, uh, Lynn Corby, who's got a reputation for killing a king's guard. Although, 
people tend to say that the guy was already injured when he finished him off, but still. Yeah. And, and so I love that he's got his reputation now from being incredibly touchy about that suggestion. Yeah. Like, he's not so much that he killed the Kingsguard as that he's killed every motherfucker who was dared to even twitch an eyebrow about the idea that he previously may not have killed the Kingsguard. <laughs> what did yeah. you say? Ah! <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's a total hothead. He's an idiot. And, um... Speaking of bringing a knife to a gunfight, he's brought a sword to the proverbial gunfight because uh, he draws his sword in the middle of this in the middle of this discussion just to move things along a bit quicker. Basically, he loses patience with Baelish trying to talk his way out of the corner, and <laughs> and that is, I mean, that is all that Baelish needs because straight away he jumps on it and is like takes the moral high ground and starts oh, to pretend to be it. outraged that someone's you know showed bird steel at a parley and all this. And it, it works, doesn't it? Because these other lords, yeah. for all the faults, do seem to have this code of honour, which has been... that They do seem a bit ashamed of what this Lynn Corby guy's done in drawing his sword. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I think it says something quite interesting about, like... Because all we've really seen of, of, of politics in Westeros is, is this completely base, untrustworthy, honourless system... Which would completely fall down if it wasn't broadly acknowledged that honour is still somehow a good thing. Like there seems to be a lot of people not really thinking terribly clearly about the the, the system in which they're operating. Um, which yeah, so yeah, yeah, it's mm. it's it's a weird sort of setup, isn't it? Um, yeah, I think I think that um, the fact that the code of honour is still very much intact at this part of the world is because it's so sort of closed off. It's been Sort of the, oh, the, the, this yeah. this war's kind of passed it by, hasn't it? It's been new, it's been a bit yeah. like Switzerland. It's been neutral, <laughs> um, hasn't really done anything. And um, the big things that have shaken this honor code system to the ground, really, in recent years. Obviously, there's the Red Wedding where guest right was sort of discarded, but there were other bits and pieces like the decline of the King's Guard and the Mad King and things like that, which I suppose. To, to some extent didn't really touch the the veil only to the extent that I suppose when the Mad King was at his height like Robert and Ned Stark were in the so I think they were at the veil of the Eerie and that's where the sort of rebellion began but um, in recent years at least they've sort of they've been a step removed and I suppose that can mean that traditions and stuff can be preserved a little more easily yeah and I think that they're a combination it seems of tradition and total badassness Hmm. Where, like, you know, because on the one hand, you would think that a, a lordship that was held by the hand of the king who was killed and who was an old man anyway, and who has been succeeded by his sickly and basically non-functional son, um, would be easy pickings. But it seems that he's surrounded by all of these fairly badass knights and lords, hmm. um, none of whom are willing to let him die. Mm. So, you know, so they have this kind of protective ring around and you sort of wish there was somebody better at the middle of it. Imagine if, well, I mean, imagine if, if Arya had ended up in that place, do you know, or something like mm. that. I mean, imagine how cool it would be if she had that sort of protection. But, I mean, of course, there's no tension in that at all. But Yeah, yeah, um, it's true. I, it's like we said with the com uh, comparing what would have happened to Tommen if he was uh, at the, uh, you know, Iron Islands where it's basically the opposite of uh, of what's happening in the Eerie, isn't it? And you could say again, if you had Robin over at the Iron Islands, then he'd be he'd be a goner straight away. Yeah, yeah, very, very much, right. 
and and this is all the kind of like luck of the draw stuff, isn't it? As well, where like Theon like, was born on the Iron Islands and he's pretty bastardish, but mm. he's so self-involved that he can still get taken advantage of. Mm. Um, you know, I, I tell you what else I loved about this this whole sequence as well is the very idea of Peter Baelish like waxing self-righteous about somebody breaking the rules of polite and honourable <laughs> yeah. discourse. It's exactly like Casablanca, isn't it? I'm shocked. Shocked, I say, to find that there's gambling going on in this establishment. <laughs> I'm shocked. Shocked, I say, to discover that sometimes people aren't entirely trustworthy in the context of parleys. <laughs> are, you, are, you, are you trying to tell me that sometimes people bring knives and things to, 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 to events where people are expecting just to have a discussion? I mean, that seems almost as crazy as, as for example, you know, having a, a, a massive fight in a throne room when someone's just turned up to sort of depose the Queen Regent or something like that and taking him hostage. I, I can't imagine anyone doing that or possibly being involved in a plot like that. Yeah, um, I mean, what do you think I am some sort of animal (laughs) Um, that might be the way things go on in King's Landing but this is the (laughs) eerie this is the eerie I have you know is where the (laughs) honour comes from yeah but the the upshot of this discussion is that um, he's given a year to sort out the veil basically and if he doesn't sort he doesn't sort of bring people together he's going to get deposed that's the that's the how it's left and he's delighted with that because you know come on give Peter Baelish a year to get his claws into an area and he will get his claws into it he's he's perfectly confident that he's going to be able to be in a very strong position when a year comes round I tell you what I liked as well is that without noticing it he's not only outmaneuvered them for now he's outmaneuvered them for the future as well because there's no way in a year's time that whatever whatever he's done there's no way they're going to be as unified as they are now Mm. so what he's basically said is give me a year to fuck up all of your relationships and all this unity that threatens me and then do whatever you like because by Mm. the time a year comes around you'll want to do something you'll want to do something else the third one of you is going to want to do another thing entirely you know Mm. and I'll, I'll weasel my way out of it sort of thing yeah, yeah. So it looks like Baelish is, and it's interesting. The last, uh, the last part we read in the last podcast, we talked about how Cersei had just cut him off and thrown him to the wolves and said he's stuck. He can just, you know, he can just deal with it, and he has dealt with it, and he's going to come back just as strong. And you just wonder what effect that'll have on the sort of power politics down in King's Landing. The fact that he was basically abandoned and he's sort of managed to survive regardless. Yeah, um, yeah. We move back to King's Landing with Cersei. Uh, Tommen's being difficult. You got to remember with Tommen, if you watch the series, that in the books he is so much younger. He's only about six or seven years old in the books, yeah. and he's about he's about what nearly ten years older than that in the film in the series. Yeah, I mean he's he's a, a an an adolescent without very much character of his own, but he's definitely mm. definitely old enough to get yanked around by his new queen. Because why would you, as D.B. Weiss and David Benioff? pass up the opportunity to have some more shagging on screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, here's an interesting point. Um, some news that Cersei hears from over at White Harbour, which is up in the north. Um, the Onion Knight, uh, basically Manderley says that the Onion Knight, Sadavos, has now been executed and his head is basically on a, sp- on a spike above the gate. So he's yeah. sort of carried out the... Um, the request of Cersei to kill um, Davos. Let me tell um, you this. Let me tell you yeah. this. If that's true, I am mm. 
fucking going to find George Mine, <laughs> and I'm going to make him read and invest in a character over several thousand pages, only to yank them away at the last moment, without even being there. You know, the very least you can do if you're going to kill one of the characters that you've asked me to care about for two novels in a row is is put them somewhere when they die that I actually get to see it happen and know that it's happened. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll say this much. Um, you do at least in uh, Dance of Dragons, uh, which is the next book, you do spend more time in the north. Like the first half of Dance of Dragons is yeah. um, runs concurrent with Feast for Crows. So it's basically the wall and the north and Daenerys and what's been going on during yeah. this period. So yeah. there is a chance we'll find out more about how this came to happen and, and what happened with Davos in the next book. It's just kind yeah. of weird that... It's kind of like the um, Lord of the Rings where they have the sort of... Yeah. They have two books on the... I think, is it in the Two Towers where you see all the stuff that happens with Aragorn and then you sort of go to... Uh, and, mean, and meanwhile, this is what Frodo's been up to. Yeah, and crash and get the shit. next one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's exactly what he does. <laughs> um, we should do Lord of the Rings, by the way. Yeah, but actually, actually good, yeah. I, I think that's... Um, I think that's, I mean, so obviously George Martin's got the biggest possible precedent to point to there in, in sort of doing this, because the guy who made the the genre, you know, originally did this with his book. But I sort of feel like Tolkien did that because that's what ancient Norse sagas do. And mm. George has done it because he's got too much plot to fit in his brain at once. Mm. So I, he's sort of written one strand of it, and then he's going to go back and write the other one. And that's a little bit... It is quite disappointing, because because I haven't had anything happen that makes me feel like, yeah, this is cool, for quite a long time. And mm. then you've just gone and killed killed Sadavis off camera. Yeah. I, on the other hand, on the other hand, could be that this is just a bait and switch, and this is all part of some cunning plan on the part of... Um, on the part of the guy who's captured Davos, and it's all some big anti-Lannister bait and switch, in which case it would tend towards a battle or a war or some kind of big play, and that's what I want to see. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, something interesting about... Uh, something I heard about the writing of A Feast for Crows, I'm not sure how true it is, to be honest, but um, apparently the original plan for Feast for Crows was going to be sort of set a few years later and... All told in flash in sort of flashbacks. So this uh, stuff. What do you mean, like after a, the end of the whole arc of A Song of Ice and Fire? I'm I'm not sure. I think it might have been sort of three or four years later. So maybe sort of about where Dance of Dragons is up to now. So we jump yeah. ahead that far and tell this is what's happened up to now. Because the because originally it was a trilogy. This and it fin it pretty much finished um, at the end of Storm of Swords, and then yeah. he said, "Oh, actually, there's more story to tell here," and then. I think his original plan was right. We've done the first trilogy. The next one starts from this point, so many years in the future, and we start uh, by sort of having flashbacks of where we are. But it was it turned into such a ball ache to write like that, and it was such <laughs> a mess that he he ripped it up and started again. And this is what we've got now. So that might have influenced what we're seeing here a little bit as well. Yeah, anyway. yeah, that's true. I suppose. Eh? Like, I like. I think it's all. I d yeah, I don't know where it's come from, but it definitely seems to me that the formulation of this book is kind of, you know, like great energy and great characters and uh, and kind of quite a lot of ambition have all combined at a point marked sort of muddy, indistinct brown, you know. Mm. Yeah. 
Um, so some of the things happen with Cersei here. The uh, she has this chat with Osney Kettleblack, um, who's the guy who's supposed to be seducing Marjorie, and he hasn't managed to do it yet. Surprise, surprise. So <laughs> she's a bit pissed off with that, and. Um, she goes out into the yard and Tommen's jousting. He's practicing his how to joust with the encouragement of Marjorie and Dolores Tyrell. And she's not happy with this because her whole, um, a lot of her efforts at the moment um, are directed at trying to keep as much distance between Tommen and the, and the Tyrells. He's, she's trying to make sure that they don't have as much influence over him. And they're obviously trying to do the opposite. It's real power struggle over this child. Yeah. And, um, and it's 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 definitely summed up in the, her reaction to this jousting event. Yeah, and once again, this is the sort of thing where you start to see Cersei's insane, like, over reliance on her own will, kind of overwhelming her insane need for power. Hmm. Uh, because if she was really smart, she would recognise that her son Lily being visibly becoming a badass is no bad thing. Mm. and will help him be king for longer, which is, after all, the only basis by which she's the regent at all. Um, you know, that's how... that's her. He's her golden ticket, so making him awesome would seem to put her in a safer position. Mm. Um, but she's so caught up with her whole politics bollocks with the Lannis... The, um... The, uh... Fuck. Uh, Tyrells, sorry. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Forgot the name. With the Tyrells, that, um... The, that she's like, that just blocks out everything, you know? Yeah, she doesn't do alliance building, does she? She can't do it. Um, whereas her dad, whereas Tywin would see the opportunities where it was mutually beneficial to come together with another house, yeah, um, and that creates greater strength for you. And mm. then you can always worry about sort of dealing with them if they become too strong further down the line. But she can't seem to do that. She th- seems to think that it's the Lannisters' take on the world, and that's the way you can ru- the way you rule is by being strong and feared, mm. and just working entirely alone. But even yeah. even Tywin, ruthless and obsessed with his line and his family name as he was, never went that far. He never he never sort of completely discarded every other family and tried to rule over everybody. It was more about building the right alliances at the right time and cashing in those alliances when they looked like they weren't as useful yeah. anymore. Yeah. Yeah, and it's a kind of I think it's a really interesting little thing about the failure of this way of doing politics really, isn't it? Is that fundamentally it's gonna screw you up. Like if you if you're engaged in zero sum games left, right and centre, then you know what your the situation you're in is that eventually you're going to lose. You can't fail to lose mm. over the, over the long run, and it's you know this kind of hack down everybody around you in order to win by default thing actually leaves you fairly hacked out as well. Mm. And I think yeah. that's where the Lannisters are, right? Yeah, there's a couple of um, soft character beats here with Cersei about sort of personally what's happened to her over the years and. Maybe maybe it gives you a bit more sympathy for the person she's become, or at least the person she was. There's at the very end of this chapter. There's this story about how she was originally betrothed to Rhaegar, the dashing young Targaryen prince, and that mm. she this didn't work out for various reasons around the Mad King. But um, had that happened, and had she married Rhaegar instead of Robert, would she have been a better person and a better queen at least? And there's also this story yeah. of this memory of Robert. Uh, sort of bringing this sort of cousin or second cousin to court and then ending up 
basically running off to sleep with her at every opportunity and the blatant way he always did it because he was king and he could do what he wanted and yeah. how it sort of basically drove a dagger into Cersei every time it happened yeah. and and how she you get the feeling that when they were married she would she was probably going to try and make it work um but he was never really interested and for all the sort of aggrandizements of Robert and how he's remembered in this history as this sort of great warrior king who sort of let himself go a bit towards the end but in general yeah. a decent kind of guy um yeah. you know in Cersei's eyes he was nothing less than a monster and it and quite justifiably so as well he treated her really dreadfully yeah that's absolutely true and there's an interesting thing here isn't it this this is whole history thing again I, we could you and I could get history geek about this I suppose you know mm. kind of you know the way history is told and you know the stories that somebody tells about a hero long after his death are probably going to be very different probably wasn't very heroic during his life because everybody's just a human being and you know you see all of that here when you get to reflect on the fact that Cersei is a horrible human being she is terrible she is awful she is bad for a reason and and I think it's very easy to forget that particularly when she's been put on such an egregiously mental character arc you know mm. where you just you know you've no incentive to do anything other than you know throw up your hands and be yeah you know she's just crazy mm. um, whereas actually there is sort of depth to this yeah um, yeah well just as we're starting to feel a little bit of sympathy for her um, she has this chat with Kyburn and um, <laughs> at the very start of the chapter um, there's this throwaway line which says Dorcas, this um, this servant is, is tending on uh, Cersei because Sunel, the old servant has gone somewhere and we find out now where Sunel's where gone she's basically been given to Kyburn to do tests on because uh, he, mm. he sort of he, he basically did his tests and basically tortured the the mountain as he was dying and now he's moved on it seems to a procession of young women and Cersei's just completely down with that she seems to have made the jump from um, dying dreadful horrendous beast of a warrior um, who did egregious things to people throughout his life being sort of experimented on as he's dying anyway to giving these innocent women just over to Kyburn to do the same thing and mm. it just takes a dark and really horrific turn here doesn't it? It really does and you, I mean this is clearly I mean this is what the Kyburn character is for isn't it really, is this kind of like you know, hammer horror, evil genius mm. sort of thing um, but it is starting to come out because what this universe was definitely missing was some more horror <laughs> yeah, uh, we have an evening with Cersei as well, where um, Cersei's in the bath and Jamie and uh, Tommen arrive, and Tommen's going to make his play for greatest child stand of the of the section here, uh, following on mm. from Robin's "Let my porridge fly" moment. He um, shouts at his mum and gives a list of demands, which involve things like you know training every day so he can become a warrior, but also um, he's going to outlaw um, beets. <laughs> Does want anyone to have beetroots anymore? <laughs> See, even having read that, it did sound to me just then like you'd said he's going to outlaw like happy hardcore music or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> headphones. I'm gonna, yeah, that's amazing. I'm outlawing those fucking headphones. Also dubstep. <laughs> fucking dubstep. <laughs> yeah. He um so he wants to outlaw uh, he wants to outlaw uh, beetroot basically. And she she basically 
she manages to sort of talk him round, and and she sort of in in the way that a, a mum can a, a mother can really sort of overpower her child when he's acting up but um, with no help from dad from Jamie who just finds the whole thing <laughs> hilarious um, and you can see the little smirk on his face can't you yeah but I think that there's also more than a, a little bit of this with Jamie that um, he probably thinks Tom has got a point as well he's very much the sort of um, thinks that people should be able to fight and King should be able to lead that way doesn't he and I, yeah. I, I, I don't I, I don't doubt that he uh he thinks that Cersei's making another mistake here as well. Yeah, I, I really think she is, but I, but it's completely in keeping with the mistake she made before. You know, like hmm. Jamie's Jamie's a nasty piece of work with whom we're being invited to sympathise. Um, but one thing you can say about him, regardless of his character, is that he knows how to be the most impressive fighter in the kingdom, hmm. and that's what the king needs to be in this system. So I'm not surprised that he's not only, he's not trying to kind of rationally engage with Cersei's crazy here. He's, he's just literally laughing as though to kind of, you know, to kind of reinforce Tommen in his rebelliousness. Because mm. to a certain extent, that's what he needs, isn't it? Yeah. That's, you know, he needs somebody who's modelling to him, actually, don't listen to this woman. That's what he needs. And in a sense, that's fathering, isn't it? In the most, again, the most fucked up way imaginable, obviously. Yeah. And the final part of this chapter is uh, Cersei um, having these people over for dinner. And when Cersei just doesn't have someone over for dinner, there's always a plot on the way. And this time (laughs) it's, um, you know, she's really pissed off with Bronn for naming Tyrion, uh, naming his child Tyrion. Uh, She wants to get him killed. And she's got these two Of course she does, because she has no, no setting marked take offence yeah. but don't kill somebody yeah. you know she doesn't really bear grudges does she she kind of sends bears after the people towards whom she has the grudge she's yeah. just like kill them kill them all <laughs> so there's Balman and Felice who she's trying to recruit and sort of ask them to kill Brom without asking them but she ends up having to get pretty pretty clear because um, at one point she's like, oh yeah, it would probably be better for everyone if uh, he was to have some kind of mishap, maybe. And uh, and Sir Balman's like, hmm, maybe a, a mortal mishap? She's like, yes, of course, a fucking mortal mishap. <laughs> <laughs> I love that her kind of uh, exclusivity has started to rid the room not only of dissent but also of talent so she's now <laughs> surrounded by these idiots where she used to be able to just sort of flicker her eyebrows a bit and everybody be like oh, yeah. oh so there's going to some killings going to occur here now she has henchmen that are so fucking stupid that she has to sit them down and go i want you to take care of him and not in a nurturing way <laughs> and even then they probably still wouldn't fucking get it <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a is there a I think there's a Mitchell and Webb sketch where there's an evil genius who does this is like a Bond villain and he sa- he's sitting there and he says stuff like perhaps we should send him a message and they're like and his henchmen sort of take it literally like oh well I suppose we could write it no 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 listen <laughs> maybe he needs taken care of well I suppose we could put him up on a fourth but no 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 listen (laughs) 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 yeah but uh, I think it's if you look for uh, there's things of Mitchell and Webb sketch somewhere with it anyway um, moving on to the the final chapter for today which is Brienne 
uh, Brienne's glorious return to Maidenpool um, with the heads of her fallen enemies, which Sir Heil Hunt carries back and she trots a few yards behind because the stink's so bad. Um, Randall Tarly. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The boss, Randall Tarly's there. Um, he He's not exactly impressed with the, with the achievements since he sends Brienne away. He basically suggests, she, despite the fact she's proven herself here, suggests she goes home. Or, um, you know, sticks around and probably will end up having some kind of dreadful end. He couldn't really care less either way, it turns out. Not exactly keen to recruit um, Brienne to his cause. Oh, what a horrendous human being he is. Honestly. <laughs> like, I mean... I mean, so he's stupid, for starters. Because it's not exactly as if there's a there's a surfeit of really great fighting men knocking around. And he's got quite a big job on trying mm. to bring law and order to this area. And here's this woman, turns up with her own armour, clearly powered by a sense, clearly trustworthy, because she's she's so profound is her sense of honour that she has chosen to sleep in fields and roll around in crap and nearly get killed for two novels now rather than just go home to Tarth where she'd be surrounded by very safe seawater and get fed properly every day. Mm. You know, like, that's fucking gold but he's such an idiot that he looks at her and sees no woman useless but mm. you know and, and you know not content to stop simply at idiot self-defeating misogyny he goes directly to vile brutal misogyny and uses the phrase she needs a good raping and like mm. and at that point you're like as if so once again i felt george martin sort of tuning in here and being like i really need you to hate this guy there we go. That's a sentence that will make that happen. Enter. And, like, I hope he's going somewhere with this because just, just dicking around with language like that for the sake of reinforcing the fact that the world is a horrible place feels mm. gratuitous to me. Yeah. Um, well, we go back to the stinking goose now because uh, obviously Brienne isn't going to go home. She's going to continue to goose, search Matt. for. Pardon? <laughs> the golden goose. The desire. Oh, yeah, sorry. Goose. Yeah, yeah. The goose Farmer everybody the wants goose. to go and visit. Yeah, yeah. The stinking the goose. goose. <laughs> stinking goose and um, yeah we're back there because she's back on the hunt for Sansa and Arya and the only lead she's got left now after Nimble Dick's death um, and the fact that the whispers turned into one massive wild goose chase one wild stinking goose chase is um, is just the hound who apparently uh, mm. Arya was seen with last or one of the Stark girls was seen with last and it mm. turns out the Hound has led this raid on the salt pans, this ruthless and vicious raid on a defenceless town um, so she's going to head up in that direction um, it's interesting that there's a rumour that the Hound led that raid but that Beric and the uh, Brotherhood Without Banners had no part in it and yeah. there's also this legend of Le Lady Stoneheart growing as well and I just thought it was interesting that when she's talking to Tarly and the lords, there's um, they're just they're basically the sort of the the knights and the the the, the army and the outlaws, and it's just one or the other, and the, all the outlaws are tarred with the same brush. And you got to go to somewhere like the Stinking Goose to get the nuance between you know the, yeah there are outlaws and then there are outlaws you know, and some are a lot worse than others. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so so the plan is to go to to the salt pans. Uh, Sir Hyle Hunt decides to go along with her, so she's got a a, a knight um, <laughs> helping her out, whether she likes it or not. And she oh, very much doesn't. oh, this doesn't bode well, does it? Though, honest mm. to God, like I'm still I'm still cringingly but reluctantly 
on the train that's marked these two are going to get together and it's going to be horrifying <laughs> like because she because she does collect terrible love interests doesn't she yeah. <laughs> she doesn't go she doesn't go for nice men she goes for bastards <laughs> renly then jamie now Hyle hunt yeah um so so there's him there's also this guy this septum maribold who's uh on his way up to the salt pans himself so they sort of join up as well and it, it turns into for briefly um just a nice walk through the countryside this um for all the horror that we've seen so far yeah. it turns into it feels very much i mean this septum seems quite has a bit of an ideal life in this world at least in that you know he, all right he sleeps under hedges and stuff and he doesn't have a home of his own he travels from town to town giving things out and sort of uh, bringing the sort of word of his religion to people but he seems to be very happy with what he's got and he's him mm. and his dog against the world and uh and they just do this circuit of, of villages and little hamlets and things uh, every year and uh and it all seems fairly it's for once it seems like a, just a, a fairly clearly nice decent character who's doesn't have a particularly bad life which is a very unusual for this book it, it is he's almost like you, you kind of want to sit him down and say have you considered writing self-help books because <laughs> i feel like more people in this universe need to know what you know yeah share the wealth yeah now um, he does have um a, a a pretty tragic past of course um, which we which we find out about as they as they sort of on the road because they hear these uh, rumors of these broken men who are abroad. Three broken men have been seen in the area, and that's shorthand for dangerous outlaws who've just sort of deserters from armies or something like that. And you've got to be careful because they'll kill you. And Brienne basically says, "Oh, they're outlaws. We'll watch out for them." And Septon, the Septon has a bit of a softer approach to it. He says there are some outlaws again, worse than others, and that a lot of these people are there's a lot of there's a real tragedy to them, and they're just desperate. Yeah. And it's it's great this because it's a real window into what these wars are like for people who aren't nobles. Because it's pretty much this or this series is pretty much told entirely through people who are born into this very top. 10% strata of society and there's knights yeah. and the nobles and the kings and queens and all this and for everybody else it's not quite as as glorious uh, even in its sort of bloody glory as uh, as it's told in the books and this is a good window into it that he says you know what normally happens is you've got a village full of people and the men there one day this lord shows up and says right we're, we're going to war you're all coming with me and they pick up whatever they've got, maybe a knife or a pitchfork or something, and wander yeah. off expecting sort of these tales of glory to come true. And in the end, it just turns into just uh, just death and destruction all around them. And the people you sign up with all die. And then, you know, suddenly your lord dies and another lord comes along and says, right, now you're fighting for me. You get dragged to another part of the country. You don't recognize the area anymore. You don't recognize the people you're fighting with. All you recognize is, once again, these massive knights on horseback in steel plate armour coming down to kill you all where you've not got a chance of fighting them and eventually you break and and run away and then you're lost in a place you've no idea how to get home you've no idea what you're going to do and that's when you become one of these broken men and it's yeah. a really interesting and, and and I don't know a very clear look at just the reality for uh, people below that top 10% when it comes to these kind of medieval wars 
Absolutely. And again, this is this history piece, isn't it? Where like, you know, mm. for, for several decades now, the way people write history, you know, um, historians have been really working on the fact that if you've only got records written by kings, you're going to end up thinking that the only things that happened happened to kings. And that's mm. demonstrably not true because real people lived in the world. Kings are always a minority of one, you know. Um and so, um, so I, this is this really interesting little thread that's starting to appear and is really quite engaging to me, where George is like sort of making a point really about he's writing a history and he's, he's making the point that the history affects people that you'll never otherwise see. And I, I kind of want to read some spin-off stuff or some like some universe stuff describing the everyday life of somebody in salt pans or wherever. Mm, yeah. Without it being the prelude to somebody I've already read about coming through and chopping their nuts off, you know, and actually, you know, because I think George has worked quite hard here to make a whole real kind of cohesive and coherent world. Mm. And I'm only really seeing it. I, I'm only really seeing the bits of it where the shit is hitting the fan at the moment when the shit is hitting the fan. So there's a lot mm. of shit spraying around the place. And I think, I think he's got more, he's got a more humane take on his story than that. And I'd love to see it. Hmm. Yeah, and and it turns out that sept that well, it says that this septum was one of these broken men, and he says that he remembers sort of one day this again this lord coming to his village and saying, right, you're in, you we're going to war, you're all all the men are coming with me, and mm. um, he talks about all the people who all the people he signed up with who died. Apparently, he he was the youngest brother, and his his sort of older brother said that he could be his squire, even though he wasn't a knight. It was just this sort of. He says a, a pot boy armed with a kitchen knife he'd stolen from the inn. He says he, yeah. he, he died upon the stepsons and, and never struck a blow. And it's yeah. just, again, this, this sort of the sort of hopelessness of joining up to that kind of war when you're that kind of person. And um, after talking about it a bit, uh, Heil Hunt recognises what war it was. He says, oh, it's, that was the War of the Nine Penny Kings. Yeah. And, um, and Septon Morrible says, yeah, uh, so they called it, though I never saw a king nor under penny. It was a war, though, that it was. And it's quite a nice way to end the chapter. It just sums up what these great wars and battles and struggles for the Iron Throne actually mean to most people in this world, which basically means you're going to go through some a few years of horror. If you're lucky, you'll still yeah. be alive with nothing. And then on, on you go, life goes on. Yeah, absolutely. And I thought that was an absolutely killer last line of the chapter. So often mm. chapters are to do with somebody getting killed horribly or some horrible revelation being made or something. But this is just, this is bluntly about the lack of humanity and the suffering that ordinary people go through. And that this is absolutely the, the universal truth about war, is that in a war very very few people win even if they're on the winning side the people who win when they're on the winning side are the six people who end up getting more rich out of it because they get to control the chaos hmm. and everybody else is just fucked whether you, whether your people happen to win or happen to lose you're fucked um you know because you're the world that you rely on the complex web of things that provides you food and provides you housing and everything has been torn out of the roots and thrown around like pickup sticks and hmm. that is the story of every war you've ever heard um and the the high level stuff changes but the basic effect of it you know only really changes in just how serious it is to the people who don't have the resources to recover well mm. brilliant i mean real great D george top marks 
<laughs> that's a good place to end it for today so that is as far as we're going for today um, if you're reading along with us for next week uh, we're going to be starting at uh, the the, chap- the next chapter which is uh, Sam uh, looking out of a window looking rather worried and uh, we're going to be reading we're going to be reading as far as uh, a chapter about Jamie uh, page 552 um, yeah so his chapter begins uh, the fields outside the walls of Darry. so he's so yeah so that's as far as the reading uh, to the next bit and uh, Dave unless you have anything else to add uh, that, that's that for this week no 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 I think I think that's good stuff I'm looking forward to next week we'll see you then Thank you.